All right, we've been thinking about the treasure principle and how Jesus has taught a lot in Scripture. About 15% of what he taught had to do with their money and possessions. He had a lot to say about what do we do with our money and possessions? What's our view toward them? We know he offers us great rewards when we view things the right way and we're giving and we're we're using things the way God wants us to use them. But I got a question for you to consider. Why is it so hard if you don't have the spiritual gift of giving and that's a blessing if you do, but if you don't have that, it can be quite difficult for you to have the attitude that that Jesus had when he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. We have a hard time believing that sometimes, some of us. Well, let me tell you a story. It might help. One day there was a young man, and uh, he, he came from the mountains in the United States in his early manhood, and he came with this firm purpose. He wanted to make his fortune. He wanted to become a wealthy millionaire. And gold became his god, and eventually he, he won it. He came to be worth millions and millions of dollars. And then the stock market crash came in the early 1900s. and He was reduced to utter poverty. His reasoning tottered. He fell along with his fortune. And as a beggar, he, he took to the road where one day a policeman found him on a bridge and he was gazing down into the waters of the Mississippi River. And the policeman ordered him to move along. Move on. And the guy said, leave me alone, I'm trying to think. <laughs> he was depressed. And he said to the policeman, there's, there's something that is better than gold, but I have forgotten what it is. And so the man was placed in an institution for insane people. They knew that a man who could forget something that important was surely not himself. True story. And it seems that we have revisited the days when people worship at the shrine of materialism. Often people in our society trusts money to do for them what God has promised to do for them. And it's interesting, I have a little illustration on the, on the screen here for you. If you're not familiar with this, it's interesting in the United States of America that it's quite ironic that on their very money, they have the words, in God we trust. You can find it on all the coins, all the notes. It says, in God we trust. It's quite ironic, don't you think? Most people are not actually trusting in God. In fact, that's a serious roadblock, in fact. And there's many roadblocks in our giving, by the way. I'll just put some of them on here on the screen here for you, such as our unbelief. You don't really believe that God is good and God is great. Why would you give? You might be insecure. It might be your pride. Uh, it might be idolatry, your... your you're bowing at the shrine of materialism. Maybe you have a desire for power and control, and you just can't bear to give it up. <laughs> Those are just to name a few things. But the raging current of our culture and our society makes it really hard to swim upstream. And you might feel like one of those salmon, you know, you got all these hurdles and waterfalls and things you, you got to get through as you're going upstream to get to the spawning ground. Maybe you feel that way. and It's considered normal, really, in our society to keep far more than we give. I'm convinced that the greatest deterrent to giving is this. It's on the screen here, that the illusion that earth is our home. That's a lie. That's a lie. The earth is our home. If you're a believer... That's certainly not the case. But before we get into these, these uh, principles we want to think about today, uh, let's just remind ourselves, what is the treasure principle coming from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21? It's that you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. See, Jesus is concerned about where you're laying up your treasure. We 
We all have treasure, but where are you laying it up? Jesus says it's foolish to lay it up here on earth. Wise people lay it up in heaven. So the the third uh, principle to help us to, to, to do this is we need to have the right perspective, the right understanding that heaven, not earth, is my home. The Bible talks a lot about where our home is and, and, and the right perspective here. In fact, uh, let's just think of some verses here. Like, for example, in Hebrews 11, it tells us that you and I, as believers in Christ, we are pilgrims, we are strangers, we are exiles. In the great hall of faith, uh, these people understood this, because look what it says here in Hebrews eleven thirteen. It talks about some of these people died. They died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Do you understand that perspective helps you live and die well. See, even though they didn't, they, they, a lot of these people weren't wealthy. They 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 were mistreated, and died, and 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 murdered, and exiled, and strangers on this earth. They still had the right perspective, and that that enabled them to live and die well. Another perspective that is helpful is that we are ambassadors on this earth. And we actually represent a different country. We don't represent New Zealand or wherever you're from. Because uh, 2 Corinthians 5.20 here says that we are ambassadors, not of New Zealand or, or Korea or China or whatever it might be. No, we are ambassadors for Christ. For Christ. You understand what an ambassador does? An ambassador is sent from their country to represent their country to go live in another country. <laughs> so this country is not yours. Christ, is your, your, your king, king of kings, is sending you somewhere to represent him. That's the right perspective to have. Another good perspective to have is that we are citizens in heaven. If you're a Christian, your citizenship is in heaven. Look what Philippians 3.20 says. Our citizenship is where? In heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm assuming all of you are citizens of some country on planet Earth somewhere, Right? Do you understand what happens when you gain citizenship? That that perspective might be helpful. Uh, particularly if you've moved from another country to, to New Zealand, for example. Uh, several years ago, uh, my family, well, my wife and I did this. Even though we were citizens of the United States of America, we uh, we decided to become citizens of New Zealand. We did, several years ago. And that that that's a helpful perspective for me. I'm not just living here, but I'm one of you. This this is my earthly home, knowing that my real home is in heaven. But while I'm here on earth, this is my home. I, I, I My allegiances are here. You are my people. I'm part of you. <laughs> There's this connection when, when you have citizenship. But the Bible tells us in Hebrews 11 here that we are citizens of a better country, a heavenly one. Look what it says in verse 16. These, these great heroes of the faith here, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. He's prepared for them a city, a better country. It's a heavenly one. That's a good perspective to have, my friends. You belong to a city, the New Jerusalem, this heavenly city that God has prepared for you. But where we choose to store our treasures depends largely on where we think our home is. To illustrate this, uh, bear with me. I, I hope this helps. Because this, this might help you to understand you know, this perspective of, of where you think your home is. Suppose, for example... 
hypothetically, your home is in England. Your real home is in England. And you come to New Zealand for a visit for, say, three months, and you're, you're living in a hotel. You've been told that you can't bring anything back to England on your home flight. You're, you're only allowed the, the, you know, the limited amount of luggage, like whatever, 50 pounds. But you can earn money here, and you can, you can electronically, or, or snail mail if you wish, deposit uh, money back in the bank in England. That's all you can do. The question is, how many of you would fill up your hotel room here with things like expensive furniture or whatever, right? Uh, put wall hangings up, you know, expensive art and whatever. Would you do that if New Zealand wasn't your home and England's your home? You're just living in the motel, right? Or hotel. Well, most people wouldn't bother going and buying expensive furniture and expensive pieces of art and hanging it on the wall when that's, they're only three months in the hotel. Of course not. You would send your money where your home is, logically, right? You'd spend only what you needed on that temporary residence, and you send your treasures on ahead. That's the proper thing to do in that situation. Why would you do that? Because your home is somewhere else. So we need to have the proper perspective so that we're thinking this way, that heaven is our home, not earth. But we often spend money on our temporary residences, even knowing what Second Peter says, that one day it's all going to burn. We need to think about our real home. Maybe another illustration would be helpful. Take a ride with me for a moment. Let's say we're riding in the car several kilometers down the road. We turn off on a road, and you pass through a gate, and you get in this line behind some trucks. And the vehicles ahead are filled with all sorts of things. They're filled with computers, uh, stereo systems, furniture, appliances, hobby stuff like uh, fishing gear, toys, so forth. And so you're climbing up this hill. You're going higher and higher up this hill until you reach... The, the car park. And there you have lots of drivers. They're unloading their cargo and throwing it off the cliff. And uh, you, you're curious. You're sitting there in the car wondering, man, what? I mean, that guy just chucked out an expensive computer. That was a Mac. Why did he do that? Well, that was, that was a $2,000 fishing rod. Why did he? And you're wondering what's going on. So you go over and you watch. You you see you see people throwing stuff off the, you know, the cliff, really expensive stuff. And so you're wondering what's going on. So you got to find out what's going on. And, and so you, you you get out of the car and you you peer over the edge where they're throwing the stuff off the cliff. And at the bottom of that that cliff there is is a giant pit just filled with people's stuff. So finally you understand what's going on. If you didn't notice in the photo there already that it's a landfill. <laughs> landfill, which is often the final resting place for people's things in their lives. Often that's the case. They go in landfills. Sooner or later everything seems like ends up in a hole in the ground. <laughs> Have you ever seen that bumper sticker? that says, he who dies with the most toys wins. You ever heard that? He who dies with the most toys wins. Sadly, many people act like the bumper sticker is true. They, they think, hey, I die with the most toys, I win. Well, here's actually a more accurate statement. I don't remember where I heard this one. Probably saw this in some Christian bookstore one time. It says, he who dies with the most toys still dies and never takes his toys with him. That's accurate, right? So we want to think about our, our lives in this way. Think of your life as a dot. <laughs> think of it in, in terms of a dot and a line. And that's pretty much, for, for a Christian, that's the way your, your life is. You have two phases, if you will, in your life. 
One's a dot, the other's this line that's extending out from that dot. I, I like visual things. This, this helps me to visualize my life. So, uh, the dot is our present life on earth. It begins and it ends. It's a dot. It's brief. In fact, James says your life is like a vapor. Very short. And then from that dot, of course, you're extending this, this line out and it goes on forever and ever off the page there. And that line is called eternity. It's forever and forever. Christians are going to spend forever and ever in heaven, the Bible says. And right now we're living in that dot. But what are we actually living for? Where's your treasure? Well, short-sighted people live for the dots. But the person who actually has a biblical, God-like perspective is going to live for the line. And that's an important principle for us to remember. Number four. Principle number four here is you don't live for the dot, you live for the line. You're living for eternity. Or as Colossians 2 tells us, we want to set our affections on things above and not on the earth. The things on the earth is a dot. Setting our affections on things above, that's, that's living for the line. I think Jim Elliott, who was, who was a missionary, died back in the 1950s by the Aka Indians. Uh, he had a right, I think, and, it, and I really appreciated his quote, which I have, uh, I have his quote framed in, up in my office. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I think he was kind of taking Jesus' words and making them his own. When Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for Christ's sake, you'll save it. It's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? What, if I lose my life, I save it? But if I try to save my life, I lose it? Yeah, that's what Jesus says. <laughs> that's exactly right. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we enslaved by our possessions and money? Are we enslaved by them? See, you, you own things, right? Well, you might think you own things. The question is, it's, it's not a sin to own things, but it can become a sin when your things own you. You see the difference? Do they own you, or do you own them? See, if we think we own our possessions, then too often they do own us. It's kind of like going on a backpack trip. Any of you done that? Carry a backpack? Yeah, yeah, we've done that. Right? If you go on a backpacking trip, do you... Do you carry everything, including the kitchen sink? And right, you know, there's a joke about kitchen sinks. It seems shows up in everything, right? No, when 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 you actually have to carry the stuff in a backpack, what do you do? You only take what is essential, right? You, you don't purposely put all this heavy stuff in that you might use. It's not like having a vehicle where you you can do that sort of thing. Nothing makes a journey more difficult than a heavy backpack that's filled with all kinds of nice stuff that's, that's unnecessary that you don't use. And that's the perspective the Bible's calling us to, reminding us you're a pilgrim. Don't fill your backpack up <laughs> and weigh yourself down and make it hard as you're traveling through life. Solomon gives us some great wisdom. By the way, turn to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Because Solomon gives us some great wisdom here as we think about it, as we are traveling through this life. Here's some truths that might help you to pack your backpack, so to speak, in a way that is, is necessary and helpful to you, as, as opposed to just weighing you down and making it really, really difficult. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If, uh, I encourage you to look at your Bibles, but if you don't have a Bible that's on the screen... Very insightful statements from a wise man who did a lot of foolish things and and seems like he did learn from them. But nevertheless, the Holy Spirit enabled Solomon to learn from his mistakes. He was a wealthy man. And here's what he says in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. He says, 
He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. You know what lesson you can learn from that? Uh, Let me just talk in my own words here. See, the more more you have, the more you're going to want, Solomon says. The money won't satisfy. It will not satisfy. And then he goes on in there in verse 10, he says, He who loves wealth with his income, this also is vanity. It's, It's empty. It's empty. So the more you have, the less you're satisfied, he's saying. The more you have, the less you're satisfied. Yeah, there's a lot of wealthy men. Read about their quote, what, what the way they thought about their wealth. That that's the way they thought. And then in verse 11, Solomon says, when, good in, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. In other words, the more you have, you know what's going to happen? The more people who's going to come after you for that wealth, including the government, including your friends, <laughs> including people who were never your friends before, but now you're wealthy, and so, wow, now you've got heaps of friends you never had before. Just talk to people who win lotto. That happens all the time. You know, the obnoxious neighbor who was never your friend, who never wanted to talk to you, is suddenly your best friend, right? Why? Oh, you got heaps of money. Yeah, that's what happens. Then in verse 11 it says, What advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So the more you have, the more you realize it does you no good. Does you no good. See with my eyes. Verse 12, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Wow. So the more you have, the more you actually have to worry about. You know Henry Ford? The guy who came up with the assembly line and Ford's, the Ford company built the automobiles. He said one time, I wish I could go back to being a mechanic. There's just so much worry and pressure and stress and being rich and being the CEO and whatever, you know. Oh, man, I kind of miss those the good old days of just being a mechanic and fixing stuff. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Just got more to worry about. And in verse 13, Solomon says, There's a grievous evil I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. To his hurt? Yeah. So the more you have, the more you can hurt yourself by holding on to it. Well, that can look like you can hurt yourself in all sorts of ways. Not necessarily physically, but in other ways. Verse 14, he says, Those riches were lost in a bad venture. So you, you have this potential of losing it. Losing it. It's not really yours anyway. Verse 15, he says, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. So the more you have, the more you're just going to leave behind. You don't get to take it with you. But remember, you can send it on ahead. And so as the wealthiest man on earth, at least at that time, Solomon learned that wealth didn't satisfy him. And neither did all the other pleasures that he was seeking after, by the way. But he tried it. He was there. He got the t-shirt. He did it. So why do you want to have more? (laughs) You might wonder. Solomon's telling us, hey, don't seek for more. Don't try to find your satisfaction in more. Be content with what God gives you. And so Solomon concludes in chapter 2, verse 11. Look at this. This is... I know he concludes at the end of the book, fear God and so forth, but, but this is kind of this conclusion in this section here. Chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expand, or expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Materialism can be a poison in our lives be infectious. It's one of those isms of, of this world we need to watch out for that it can, uh, can seep into our souls. Uh, sometimes even we don't even know it. And so what is the antidote to the poison of materialism? Well, God offers a, 
a wonderful antidote or solution in 1 Timothy 6. As he's, Paul's talking to, to the rich in this present age, he says this, verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. But on who? Set your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation. Notice it's not for now, it's for the future. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Truly life. This earth is not truly life. <laughs> And so the Holy Spirit is saying that being generous and willing to share God's possessions and money and being rich in good deeds then allows us to take hold of something that lasts, something that is truly life. And so the question to ponder is then, what, what is that opposed to? Opposed to what? Well, it's opposed to this life of materialism. Life of materialism, which leads to Principle number five is that giving, according to Jesus in the Bible, giving is the only antidote to materialism. So when you give up something, you put off something, according to Ephesians 4. Remember, you always have to put something on its place. Principle of replacement states it's not enough to just put off. You must put on. It must be replaced. And it must be replaced in like kind. So if your temptation, your sin is materialism, then... The solution is to give. Instead of hoard, give. So what does giving do? Giving does not strip us of vested interests. What it does is it actually shifts our vested interests from earth to heaven. It's shifting things from ourself to God. And by the way, money is not all that we can give. Don't just, don't just think of your money. Uh, we need to think of other things as well. For example, you can give your time. You don't have to be wealthy to give time, right? Find somebody in need and give of your time. You can give of your wisdom. God has given you wisdom in various ways. You're all God designed you all differently. Give, give in that area. Uh, God's given you expertise in, in various ways. And I praise God, and I do appreciate the, the various ways God has made all of you. You're very helpful in, in one way or another. And so giving, what it does is it, it, it frees us from this, this hold that money and possessions can have on us. Giving will, can shift us to a new center of gravity, if you will, which is, of course, heaven. Is it, are you being pulled toward heaven? Where, where's your affections? Where's your treasure? Jesus says, that's where your heart will be. And so it's a, it's a blessing. So, you know, God might gift some of you with your hands, and it's a blessing that uh, at least one person here might, might be really good at, uh, you know, with computers and Internet and so forth, and you can, you can come and fix my computer, or some of you might be really good with your hands in, in, as a mechanic, and you, God, God uses you in, in fixing people's cars or whatever. Some of you know how to paint, and you're, you're, you have the ability to go and help people paint. I'm just naming a few things. Sorry, I can't name all of you, okay? But right? God's all given you gifts. Use your time. Use that wisdom. Use your expertise that God has given you to serve Him. There's a little card on the desk in uh, what used to be my office. Now it's Lori's office. It's always been a good reminder let me just share it with you. I, I've often seen that as I've been tempted to grumble and complain or even grow weary in well-doing. There's a little card in, in, in uh, Lori's office now that says, uh, I put it up on the screen here for you, Work for the Lord. The work is hard, the hours are long, and the pay is low, but the retirement benefits are out of this world. <laughs> Literally. And figuratively. And that's true. See, if you're, 
if, if you're living for that line, if you're living for heaven, recognizing where your citizenship is, that you're an ambassador for Christ, you're living for, for eternity and for Christ in heaven, then your retirement benefits are out of this world. They're somewhere else. What a blessing that is. And so I, wanna, I want us to turn to a, a passage that, to me, is, is the most helpful, most detailed model of biblical giving and that would be 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I just want to end today by, uh, by sharing with you a set of standards here in 2 Corinthians 8 of how you and I can be dedicated, selfless believers in our giving. Uh, this particular model is, 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 as far as I know, is, is talking about giving in, in relation to money. But remember... We can give in our time and our wisdom and our expertise as well. So there's uh, there's going to be several several principles coming from the text here. I hope will be helpful to you as we as the title of my chapter here says encouragement to give generously. Second Corinthians eight. Look at verse one. So Paul's writing here to the church at Corinth, which is kind of right in the middle of Greece, by the way, and he says, "We want you." to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. I will stop there. Now, you could keep reading on into chapter 9 if you wish, and I encourage you to do so, but let's just uh, draw out a few principles here. Number one, we see biblical giving is motivated by the grace of God. How, how does somebody give with the right attitude? That doesn't come natural. <laughs> your, your sin nature, your flesh is going to fight against that. It's going to, your, your, sin, your sin nature is going to say, oh, it's mine. Notice the proper motivation is the verse 1, the grace of God. God enables you to do what doesn't come natural. So that's the primary stimulus for giving. Giving, by the way, is just simply another effect of God's transforming grace, and it appears through the sanctification process where God is setting you apart from your sin, yourself, unto Him. I appreciate some of you are, are generous giving people. And, and, I can, and, and I have learned and am learning much from you. Some of you, it seems like you have this gift of giving, so I hope you don't feel like I'm speaking down to you. In fact, I, I adore you. I appreciate the gifts God has given some of you, okay? But we, we see here that um, biblical giving is motivated by the grace of God. So if you're a giving person, that's God's work in you. It's His grace enabling you to do that. And number two, biblical giving rises above difficult circumstances. Did you see the difficult circumstances in verse 2? They, these churches in Macedonia, by the way, Macedonia was in northern Greece. There's a region up there in northern Greece. So these churches, verse 2 says, they were going through severe tests of affliction. A severe test of affliction. And so because of that, they could have easily excused themselves from giving. They, they could have said, hey, I can't give right now. You know, times are really hard. We're going through extremely difficult times, and we don't know, you know what the economic future holds. So I, I just can't do anything right now. 
But those churches in Macedonia didn't offer excuses. They didn't say, oh, woe is me, poor, uh, you know, poor me. Because notice it says they were going through extreme poverty. Extreme poverty. And by the way, that word poverty there, it refers to the most severe type of economic deprivation you can experience. It's the kind that puts a person in a situation where they're a beggar. You're a beggar. You have nothing, virtually nothing, and you need people to help you. Third biblical standard, if you will, that is helpful here is that biblical giving is accompanied by sincere, heartfelt joy. So even though they're going through severe tests of affliction, notice it's they had uh, this abundance of joy. Joy. It's not based on circumstances. Joy replaces any motivation that causes us to just merely do something out of duty or to do something because we're pressured into it or there's fear or you want to do it for some reward. These Macedonian churches, by the way, were not just content to be willing givers. They're doing what chapter 9, verse 7 says. Look at chapter 9, verse 7. This was their attitude. Chapter 9, verse 7 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He loves a cheerful giver, and that's the way they were. They had an abundance of joy, it says. And so our attitude ought to be this unhindered joy that's remembering the blessing that we we have of laying up treasure in heaven. What a blessing. I get to give rather than receive. Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. I I know God's going to give back to me in greater measure than I give to Him. There's no way I can outgive God. (laughs) And so my giving can be accompanied with a sincere, heartfelt joy. And number four, biblical giving is boundless generosity. Boundless generosity. Verse 2 talks about even though they're have this extreme poverty going on. It says their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Wow. Wow. So it's not based on money or possessions. The churches were were not rich, materially speaking. But God says they were generous. They were generous. So it's it, generous is not based on how much you give. You remember what Jesus said about that widow who, who gave the little littlest piece of coinage at the time, the mite? Jesus says she's given more. So it's not it's not based on, you know, did I give one dollar or one million? It's it's based on what you have. And notice their generosity stemmed from an attitude of single mindedness. I say that because the Greek word here translated generosity literally means the exact opposite of one who is double-minded in all his ways. James talks about that. So these Macedonian leaders here, they're rich in, in this attitude of that they were single-minded. They, were, they had a selfless generosity toward God and other people. So that's the boundless generosity we're talking about here. And, and the, the fifth standard is this. The biblical giving is both proportionate and sacrificial. Proportionate and sacrificial. Verse 3 tells us this. So the, the Macedonians' individual capability was the starting point for the amount they gave. Because the, the word means there in your Bible, it, it talks about their ability. What ability did they have? That's the starting point. And, and Paul, by the way, elaborated on that in verse 12 of your Bible. Look at verse 12. because He says, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person, or not according to what he does not have. (laughs) So it's it's in your means, what you have, is what he's saying. And in verse 3, Paul highlights, by the way, several elements of the Macedonians giving here, which really summed up this whole concept of the free will, free will giving. Have you heard that concept, free will giving? It comes from this passage here. Let me just share a couple principles 
on free will giving from this passage. Number one, notice it's free, free will giving is according to your means. According to your means. That's what it says, right? According to your means. It's according to what you have. In other words, giving should be proportionate. Contrary to what some people think, God hasn't actually set a fixed amount. He hasn't set a percentage. He expects His people to give on what they have, not on what they don't have. It's based on what you have. Uh, Another principle to consider here is, it says it's beyond their means. That's the sacrificial part. So your, your giving is to be sacrificial, beyond your means. God's people are to give according to uh, proportionally and sacrificially. Well, we could talk a long time about giving sacrificially, but you do know what that means, right? I mean, in fact, your whole life is to be a living sacrifice to God, Romans 12.1 says. Present it to Him. Number six, the sixth standard for biblical giving is it's voluntary and a privilege. It's voluntary and a privilege. So, notice that the text says it's of their own accord. That's the idea of voluntary. Right? Nobody should force you to give. Right? So, if if TV evangelist or pastor or anybody says, you you have to do this or you have to do this set amount or, or this percentage or whatever... That's wrong. That's wrong. It's voluntary. God's people are to, aren't to give out of some compulsion or because they're being manipulated or intimidated. It's of their own accord. The idea is they're, they're, they're choosing of their own course of action here. Your choice. Uh, these people were self-motivated. Self-motivated. And by the way, they viewed the entire ministry of giving as a privilege as well. It wasn't just an obligation. Verse 4 talks about begging us. So that the Macedonian believers were begging Paul and others here earnestly for the favor of taking part in a relief of the saints. Wow, begging? You understand what that means? Begging? Uh, that word there, begging, denotes a very strong pleading. It's, it's like they're on their hands and knees. Please, Paul, I want to give away some money. <laughs> Can I help? And they were asking for this privilege of giving, because notice it, it mentions they're earnestly doing this. It means they're making their case aggressively why they should do this. And they're begging Paul for the privilege of participating here in the in the supporting of other Christians, these saints who are somewhere else. Wow. So biblical giving is voluntary and a privilege. And then number seven, it's an act of worship. Did you know you, you get to worship God when you take his money and give it away? You're worshiping God in the process. Verse five talks about uh this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So, it far exceeds normal acts of charitable donation here or just some occasional contribution. What this does is it, it actually takes our giving and it's rising to this level of spiritual worship. Because what did they do? They first gave themselves to Yahweh. God. And and first, by the way, in verse 5 there, that word first, it's not talking about time or chronology. It's talking about your priority. The priority for a giver is, of course, God. God comes first. The first priority for the Macedonians was, I'm going to present my God, uh, myself to God as a living sacrifice, and He can use me as however he wishes, and that includes all my possessions and money. They were personally dedicated. And so, as a result of that, they gave everything they had to God in an act of total dedication. It was worship. And so this act demonstrated what their first priority was. What's the first priority? God. And so that, then everything God owns is is his anyway, right? And it's available for him, and, and we can be a wise steward of it. 
So their giving was an, an act of worship. And number eight, biblical giving is in submission to church leaders or the pastors, if you will. Notice uh, it mentions a few leaders here, verses 5 and 6. Paul's, of course, talking about himself. Uh, Verse 6, we see Titus is mentioned here. Titus was a church leader. But what did they do? They first gave themselves to God, but they also submitted themselves to to these church leaders, God-ordained leaders. Well, I'll just move on because that was hard for me to talk about personally. But we see, number nine, that biblical giving is in harmony with other Christian virtues. Did you notice the Christian virtues mentioned there in verses eight, uh, 7 and 8? Sorry. So you've got Christian virtues mentioned uh, starting in verse 7. You've got faith, speech, knowledge, all earnestness, love. And then he ends verse 7, see that you excel in this act of grace also. See that you excel. So the, the ninth characteristic of biblical giving here is actually is flowing out of the complete work of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. What is the Holy Spirit doing? What's He continuing to do in your life? Well, it, it should occur in perfect harmony with all these other things that He He is working in and through you. And so verse 7 says, Excel in everything. And the giving of the Corinthians was to be in harmony with these Christian virtues. By the way, faith. That's this, this trust in God. The, the speech there is particularly in, in reference to sound doctrine. The knowledge is talking about our application of doctrine. And the, the earnestness here has to do with our spiritual passion. So biblical giving, the Bible is telling us, is not done in some empty vacuum or in isolation from other Christian virtues. They, they go together. And so if your giving is operating right along with other Christian virtues, then you're, you're motivated here by the greatest virtue of all, it says, which is love. Love. Number 10. We'll end with this one. Biblical giving, then, is proof of love. It's proof of love. And by the way, notice verse 8 says, not as a command, not as a command. So this is free will giving. Free will giving is never according to some command or some obligation. You're not to be manipulated or intimidated. See, here's, here's what some people did, even in Bible times. Some people gave without loving. And if you give without loving, you know what that's called? That's just legalism. You can give without actually being loving. But you can't love without giving. <laughs> They go together. True affection leads one to be generous. So the true test of sincere love is not do you have positive emotions and good intentions, but what's your action? What is you actually what are you actually doing? You remember what James two says? James two says, Show me what? Show me your faith by your works. Don't just talk about your faith and then don't do anything with your faith. No, James says, I know you're a genuine Christian. James is all about being spiritually mature. What does a spiritually mature person look like? A spiritually mature person backs up what they say with what they do. You walk the talk. That's what you do. Tangible actions. It's not just about what you say. And so this type of giving proves then Number one, you love God. You, you, you love His people, the church, the bride of Christ. You love other people. Generous giving to God then results in greater giving from God. By the way, it's impossible to outgive Him again. He owns everything. It's all His. So the promises associated with giving then should hopefully, hopefully stimulate you. Stimulate you to be sacrificially generous. It is the path to God's abundant blessing. It is a, it's a path that I hope we're all eager to walk. And may God 
enable you and motivate you by His grace to give, to be a cheerful giver, not a reluctant one, not a uh, one of those grumbling and complaining type of, of, of people, but one who, who understands this truth. Because you're, you're, you're not living for the dodge. You're living for the line. You're, your home is heaven. You're an ambassador for Christ. You're representing Him. You're living for something that's out beyond you that isn't of this earth. With that kind of perspective, you, you will be a cheerful giver. And you understand it's, hey, I'm, I'm just God's money manager. It's all His stuff anyway. I mean, God enable us to have a a right perspective, a biblical perspective of our possessions and money. Let's pray. The biblical principles, we're thankful for Jesus' teaching and, and Paul's teaching and all the other teachings. We, we can just kind of lump them all together and gain wonderful principles in how we are to live on this earth. You've been richly uh, blessing us. You've been so good to us. We all have much. We all have something that we can give and something we can use. You've given us time. You've given us wisdom. You've given us expertise. So may we understand what you have given us and it doesn't really belong to us and may we use it for your honor and glory. So we, may we do it because we love you and we love others as we love ourselves. Would you give us this kind of motivation, this kind of heart that we can we can do this as cheerful givers? Would you multiply what you have given that it would be a help for your cause and for the cause of Christ and reaching out to our community and to even to beyond our community? Would you use us even even though we're not big, we're not large? Uh, would you use the resources you've put in our hands, in our minds, to to serve you, to serve others? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.